0: I know.
1: This is the OTP presented by Farm Bureau Health Plans. Plan on Farm Bureau Health Plans, making it easy to get the health care coverage you need for less than you think. Visit FBHP.com. With Rhett Bryan and also Dave McGinnis, I'm Mike Keith. As we wind up the Senior Bowl week with a look at... Um, Kind of what we saw, it was it was thought to be a running back strong class. Coach Dave McGinnis, were you impressed with the running backs in Mobile?
0: I was impressed with a couple of them. You know, you know we, we've already we've already talked about. You know, I was impressed with Eric Gray from day one. From day one, just the way he carried himself, and and then just 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 how he was how he is able to run. This is a jump cut guy that's that's very very impressive. And then Rhett's guy. Ty J Spears from Tulane. I was very, very
2: impressed. Why did you like Tajay Spears as a player? He just has a burst out of his first couple of steps that is uh, explosive. I saw him weave through traffic, and obviously this is practice. But doing that, he's, he, the one thing he told me in the interview I did with him is he, he wants to work on his skills receiving out of the backfield. But... Um, guy isn't scared of anything, alpha mentality, and he carries it the way he carries himself on the field. I mean, you're talking about a guy that just absolutely destroyed Southern Cal in the, in the Cotton, Cotton Bowl, Bowl when yeah. nobody expected it. He had four touchdowns, and he just – he's built low to the ground. You know What you say, 5'9", 205? Um, he's the kind of back a lot of teams are going to be looking for.
1: Let's take a listen to Rhett's interview with Tajay Spears, running back from Tulane, five, nine and Here oh four. Here is that talk on the OTP.
2: Tajay Spears, running back Tulane, you have got the smoke, man. I mean, the way you finished your career, you had, what, eight straight 100-yard games, and then you got shocked the world in the Cotton Bowl. You had 205 yards, four touchdowns over Southern Cal. What was that like through that last, you know, several weeks of your, your college career?
3: It was just like grind time. I knew I knew I was kind of against the wall, kind of my back kind of against the wall, so I had to, it was fight or flight, so I had to fight. I can't, I, can't, I, ain't, I ain't running from nothing, I had to fight. So you are, in my opinion, one of the most interesting running back
2: prospects, not only here in Mobile at the Senior Bowl, but in this draft process because you got a great skill set in this. I thought you had a really nice first day of practice. What was your takeaways from practice number one heading into this week?
3: Um, I, I, I kind of watch film, but uh, I want to do better with like route running and stuff. But uh, I'm in a good spot. But it's all about me being in a good spot, but it's all about what I'm going to do today to make sure I'm in a better spot today. After the, after the second day of practice, I want to c- continue to keep on improving, you know, climbing up the ladder, coming up you know, the board.
2: Receiving skills out of the backfield is something that, NFL backs are asked to do more and more. So it's clearly a place you said you're working on. What are some of the other things maybe that uh, you're trying to improve your craft with as you go on this process?
3: Just being all around completely pair, which I am, but it's either I'm trying to perfect it. So I don't want- Refinement. That's yeah. what we're talking about. Uh-huh. I just want to like, I'm already a complete pair. So I just, want to, I just want to touch everything up and just keep on getting better in every area. And that's, that's, what, that's how you go from good to great and from great to legendary.
2: These uh, running backs invited here to this uh, Senior Bowl week, I mean, there's some great, you're standing out in this, but Eric Gray from Oklahoma, uh, Cameron Peoples from Appy State, I mean, there's some really good talent here. You're already making a, a mark for yourself here, like you did to finish out your college
3: career. You got that belief in yourself. You're the only one that can do it, right? Yeah, you got to. You got to. When the ball in my hands, I'm, I'm a different person, man. Like, all those guys you said, they probably had, they had a great practice yesterday, but like... Like, not just being, like, disrespectful or nothing. Like, I don't, like, wake up worrying about them. I just wake up worrying about what I got going on. So, like, today I'm trying to turn it up a whole nother notch today.
2: College is in the rearview mirror. The process is just beginning for your
3: future. What's the thing you're most excited about in this process? The draft starts in Mobile. Like, uh, the most thing – the thing I'm most excited about is running – being here, of course. Being here, of course, practicing hard. But uh, when we get to Indy running the fast 40 and turning heads. But, um – just living in the moment, man. Taking one day at a time. Just appreciative for everything I got.
2: All right, for everybody that loves a good 40 time like I do, I'll be at the in, uh, combine in Indy.
3: What do you think you're gonna run? Give me an idea. In a full football park area, uh, but I'm, you know, I don't like making promises. Well, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not gonna. I'm trying to not try to put you in a spot. Yeah. I'm. Tired. I'm gonna run fast, though, man. I'm gonna run fast. Rhett Brian
1: Tajay Spears, running back from Tulane. So thought to be a strong tight end class along with a strong running back class, did the tight ends impress you, Coach Dave McKenna?
0: Yes, they did. And, and and the one that stood out among among all of them was Luke Musgrave. Luke Musgrave came into this thing with a lot to show people because of what his history has been. And for our listeners, his history was he only played two games at Oregon State before he suffered a knee injury. And I, I think he did over and above even I, what he probably
2: thought he could do down here. He impressed me. But there were a bunch of guys, a bunch of guys at that spot. Cameron Latu from Alabama, who's going to be a good inline blocking tight end. And then there's one from Clemson that I think people are going to need to take a look at as well. Davis Allen is his name, a talented guy who maybe he's not that top-end
1: guy. There, there's talk that there could be five tight ends taken in the first round of the draft on April 27th in Kansas City. Don't know if Davis Allen is one of those, but he may be a guy that you grab down the line who could help somebody pretty quickly. There's my talk with Clemson tight end Davis Allen. They say this is the year of the tight end in the draft overall. Does it make this, the Senior Bowl, even more important?
4: Yeah, I'd say so. Um, I think this is really just an exciting opportunity for me personally. I'm extremely thankful to be here uh, with so many great tight ends, both on the national and American team. Um, You know, tight end room is loaded on both sides, uh, which makes things more exciting. So, for sure, you know, um, the talent's through the roof right now, and um, I'm just thankful to be here. How would you describe your game? Uh, I'd say I'm a guy that prides himself in being able to do both, block and catch the ball. Um, I'm not afraid to shy away from a block, and I'm not afraid to stick my nose in and and block whoever. Uh, And I'm confident that whenever the quarterback throws it my way, I'm confident that he's confident in me to make the play.
1: Where do you see your growth potential as you go into the
4: league? Um, Everywhere, in all aspects of my game. I think I need to improve in both aspects. There's so much room for improvement for me. That's Clemson
1: tight end Davis Allen. Another thing we were watching during the weekend mobile is offensive lineman, Coach Mack, uh, because the Titans are obviously going to have a lot of work to do in the offensive line, whether it be draft or free agency. But we're starting with draft talk here. Overall, were you pretty impressed? Yes. With the,
0: okay. Both both groups, okay. both teams. I mean, they, to me, overall, collectively, as a group of, of players they assembled, For both teams, the offensive line stood out to me. Uh, Osiris Torrance from Florida is a guy that really stood out to me. Uh, I I like what I saw from Warren McClendon from Georgia. You know, I just looked at him. Mike, how do you say Cody's last name? Malk.
2: Malk. Cody why.
1: That's why I asked you. It's Malk. Cody Malk. He's from North Dakota State. Big red-headed kid with no front teeth. That's going to be the story that's going to come out of the week. Cody Malk. He's made a really good week for himself here. He did some snapping, too. He's played yes, he all, did. He's played all five positions in the offensive line, which may make him valuable. Of course, we were a little bit partial to the story of the Chattanooga offensive lineman, McClendon Curtis, because we have a Chattanooga offensive lineman on the Titans roster in Corey Levin. That's correct. Uh, McClendon Curtis, a Chattanooga native, one of our favorite places. And,
2: uh, Rhett, you had a chance to talk to him, one of your very favorite interviews. He is... A infectious uh, person to talk to with his attitude. And he, he, he says in the interview right here, you're going to uh, to hear, he's a people person, and you can't see it, but he's got a million-dollar smile, and, man, is he a large human being. Here's Rhett Bryant with McClendon Curtis, offensive lineman, Chattanooga Mocs on the OTP. So, here we are, you're on your draft path in this, and I feel like, and we're gonna get into your game in a second, but I feel like with Cole Strange and how he rocketed up the charts and, and was a pick in the first round by the New England Patriots, it can't help but help a guy like you in this whole process to kind of put a spotlight on the university, and obviously your play will further that. Yeah, most definitely. Cole kind of opened up the door for all of us, and
4: uh, I mean, even before Cole, yeah, had Corey Levin, uh, he was the one that helped, helped it out. So Cole's just, you know, recently just been that guy to help us. And even when he got to the Patriots, I talked to him when, like, he was going through training camp and stuff like that. He was just like, man, you know, I'm running with the ones, but, like, got to keep it going, you know, never never being complacent. That's one thing I feel like for, uh, for us as FCS guys, personally, our group,
2: we just never were complacent. So I think, personally, that's just all I got to do. You know, and it's funny you say that because I have – covered the NFL for 25 years and I feel like guys who are both undrafted or late, late picks just feel like they give a little more. And that's no knock against the guys that picked high, but you got to keep grinding. That's the mentality, right?
4: Yeah, most definitely. You always got to keep grinding. There's always a way to get better. There's always an opportunity to get better for for you as a player. You know, you never reach your max potential unless I mean I don't think quarterbacks do, but everybody, you know, there's always some room to get better. So that's how I feel about it.
2: Cole Strange, you talked about him being a sounding board. Is it good for to have his ear through this process since he's kind of been there and done that before you? Yeah, pretty much it is. Uh, he talked to me, I want to say Monday, before I went to do our
4: open interviews and stuff like that with the NFL teams. And uh, he just told me to be myself. You know, I love people. I enjoy being around people. So he was just like, do you. You know, tell them the truth and
2: uh, have fun with it. All right, so you're a D lineman, switch to the offensive line. What uh, do you find yourself in a preference as far as lo- where you line up along the line? Do you have a preference you like?
4: I guess, I mean, I like, well, I like guard. I like where I'm at. I, I mean, if I was a D lineman, I'd be a nose guard. That's what I used to play. Uh, I enjoy the nose guard part. Um, but guard is just because I enjoy being inside. And ha- action happens a lot faster. Tackle, you got to be a little more patient. So, um, But, you know, whatever
2: it comes to, you got to adjust. You've had a practice under your belt against – uh, this other top talent invited here. What was it like in the one-on-ones yesterday?
4: All those guys are really good. Um, getting the chance to go against them and seeing like the different strengths they have um, really helped me and like let me understand like all right, you need to make sure you be really good with your hand placement and then my sets. So uh, I'm looking to improve that today in practice.
2: Any other areas you're looking to improve this week and as you go through you know, the draft process?
4: More so like my run game, uh, take my first few steps off the ball and run. Um, and also just like my flexibility as a position and as like on my body. So working on that.
1: When you visit Mobile, Alabama, you meet not only prospects like McClendon Curtis from Chattanooga, but there are a lot of superstars in our business walking around, because ESPN's here covering the draft, NFL Network's covering the draft, all of the major uh, print and online outlets are covering the draft. Stefania Bell was walking around, she is ESPN's injury expert, and unfortunately, uh, the Titans' have a little too much experience with that um, in the last two years. So Rhett was kind enough to ask her to come chat with us, and Coach Mac Stefania Bell is fascinating.
0: She is tremendous. You know, I, I, I knew her a little bit, but never to have sat down and talked like we did. And when she started talking and opening up, first of all, she's brilliant. Oh, gosh. But she is so spot on and so, you know, right directly understands the National Football League and not only national, but just professional athletes injuries and where they are. It was it was probably one of the most fascinating interviews I've ever sat in on, just how relevant it was, how informative it was. And then as she started talking you know, remember when she first we first she first sat down. And she said, "Look, I, I, I'm not down here. Don't ask me who's who." And, uh, and, and Mike said, "Oh, that's not what we're going to do." And she didn't want to quit talking. She was really enjoying.
2: It, it was a fabulous interview. She, first of all, OT people. She's not just the kind lady that you're checking to see who's injured and what she says mm. about your fantasy football team, <laughs> uh, which I also uh, love to f- follow her for. She is Princeton educated, oh, finished wow. her education at University of Miami, was a physical therapist for over 20 years. She has a serious background in this. Uh, she tells us she goes to all kinds of medical conferences. She keeps it in the loop. She has people on the ground in the medical profession that she has networked to. Uh, she is a trusted voice by ESPN. Uh, and it's so interesting to hear her story of how she developed that role for the Big Four Letter Network.
1: Stefania Bell is uh, somebody who will play prominent role as you watch all of the combine coverage because so much of that has to do with injury situations. And she can take the language of it that we may not understand as layman and convert it to a way that you can understand. We were thrilled to get her. Here's that conversation on the Friday (music) OTP. Stefania Bell is ESPN's injury analyst. Thank you for taking time with us.
5: Oh, thank you for having me.
1: Okay, so we've had injury issues. As you know, the Titans (laughs) have played 177 players in the last two years. 91 in 2021, 86 this past year. And a a lot of the injuries have been injuries of just play, you know, things that are completely understandable. But the lower extremities, those sorts of injuries, seem to be more common around the league. Is that a fair statement?
5: It's totally fair. You're actually hitting on something that is really – uh, of concern to the Health and Safety Committee in the NFL. And there is a lower extremity task force within that group that is looking at these lower extremity injuries because they're so problematic around the league. You probably noticed them all in Tennessee because, I of course, you do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there are people who would say that, uh, you know, Kansas City had had a pretty significant one just in the last couple of weeks that threatened uh, their, their championship quarterback. But uh, you guys know because actually Ryan Tannehill had the same injury that Patrick Mahomes had and ultimately went, tried to play through it and was injured again and ultimately required surgery. So uh, this is a, definitely a concern because uh, it gets into, um, you know, just the way to, for quarterbacks in particular, the tackling of the quarterbacks, it gets into the field surfaces it gets into the footwear the shoes it gets into the type of tackling they're actually looking at what they call these hip drop tackles I think that's going to be a topic of conversation in the offseason that was Brian Tannehill got taken down on one of those uh, not necessarily a dirty play but just the mechanism of the tackle that forces the leg into a position where it's vulnerable these are all things that are being discussed so you guys are you're not wrong by any means. There are people who are looking at it. It's just a question of how do you uh, how do you legislate the game? How do you better protect the players? Is it equipment? Again, field surface has been a topic. Uh, it's, it's tough because injuries, I say this all the time as a PT, you know, it's, the, it's a multifactorial situation. And so it's really hard to replicate all the conditions that constitute one injury to another and so sometimes it's hard to look at high ankle sprains for example and say well this is the reason they're happening because it's usually a multitude of things and and that's research and it takes time and time is not what we have a lot of when we're when we're watching these players
0: you know as a I i coached in this league for three decades over 30 years the high ankle sprain explain that to us a little bit because that has that has become more and more you know, a a focal point. And as a coach, I mean, you used to cringe when you got the soft tissue injuries because you never knew how long that recovery was. The high ankle sprains now, just explain that injury to to our listeners.
5: So, you know, the garden variety ankle sprain, as we call it, is the, the basketball ankle sprain that everybody's familiar with. You go up in the air, you land on another player's foot, you roll your foot so that the sole of your foot points inward and that the outside of your ankle is what's injured That's the typical ankle sprain that we've all thought of as the most common injury. But in the NFL in particular, we're seeing all these high ankle sprains, as you mentioned, and it's not down low. So the the basketball sprain is what we call low ankle sprain, ligaments on the outside that attach basically the lower leg bones to the foot. Um, The high ankle sprain is up higher at the roof of the ankle, so right in the center, where the two lower leg bones join together and, and they meet over the top of the ankle joint. And those ligaments are, are very strong, and they're actually reinforced on the front side and the back side of the joint. But when they tear, uh, they, they it creates a separation between the two lower leg bones, if you can imagine that. So every time you take a step as an athlete, it stresses that, it kind of opens up that area, makes it impossible to have stability, makes it hard to weight-bear fully, because as you place that weight, you're continuing to stress those ligaments that are there to try and protect the ankle. It's typically caused by rotation of the foot outward. So if you're standing, it's very hard without a visual, but if you were standing and you rotated your foot so your toes pointed outward relative to your shin, that's the mechanism of injury. So if you go back and look at any of the video of these players getting hurt, you'll see usually their foot's planted and they get twisted. And then you see their toes are pointing away from their shin. And that wind-up mechanism, it's torsional, it's rotational, and it pops the ligaments. And if the force is enough, it not only can go up, through there's a little membrane between those two bones it can tear that it can also crack the fibula the outer leg bone if you think about tony pollard who just uh, got hurt had a high ankle sprain but also a fibula fracture so uh, and then if it's really bad it can take out the ligaments on the inside of the ankle as well and in surgery they may have to fix both the medial ankle or inside ankle and the high ankle so It's a complex injury, a lot of different presentations. It can be a mild sprain, so some guys will be better in a couple of weeks because it's just enough to stress the ligaments but not create a complete disruption. But if you have a complete disruption, totally unstable, it becomes a surgical situation.
1: Stefania Bell, what is a standard recovery from just the garden-variety high ankle sprain?
5: you know, it, typically if it's mild, it's going to be a two- to four-week injury. Uh, anything more significant, and then you get into what's the player positional demand. Because, you know, high sprains are also pretty common in the trenches. Uh, You get linemen with these and it gets very tough to get into their stance position because of what I was just talking about with that gapping and stressing across the top of the ankle. Uh, So depends on what they have to do. Do they have a lot of rotation in their play? Are they a skill position player where they have to cut and pivot because that rotation's gonna bother them? And that's why we see anything that's more significant than a very mild sprain is usually in the four to six week variety before you're even thinking about coming back. Obviously, if it's surgery, uh, that becomes a several-month recovery.
2: Stefania, we saw Patrick Mahomes. It looks like he reaggravated that in the AFC Championship game. Is that uh, what you saw in terms of some of the torsional movements that you were talking about? And when you already have a high ankle sprain,
5: I think it's a really good question because it comes down to: Did you aggravate it and make it? worse or were we just seeing that he was playing through a painful injury i think it was the latter it's going to be uncomfortable he was only a week out from the injury so you knew it was going to be uncomfortable for him to play and if you again go back and look the very specific times where he was forced into that rotation and you could see him wince or he hobbled right out of it because every time that stresses it But it didn't necessarily, in my term definition of aggravate it, didn't necessarily make the injury worse than what it already was. The big concerns are the physical takedowns, the contact, the tackle. Uh, And he was pretty good about being able to avoid that or get his foot up if he did. I mean, Patrick Mahomes is another level among the quarterbacks because of his ability to throw even when he's not planted through that foot, which, you know, with it being his right leg and trying to drive the ball, He's a guy who throws in the air and does it really well. So it didn't have as much of an impact on his game other than his mobility. We didn't see him. No design runs for him. We saw him run at the very end when he needed to make a play. But you know in his mind, he's like, this is, you know, the clock's running out. He's got a few seconds. He could sort of overpower any discomfort. But I don't think he set himself back. And I think he's going to look better by the time he gets to the Super Bowl because he'll have two more weeks of treatment two more weeks of basically recovering and working towards that. So uh, look out Philadelphia.
0: <laughs> Can you explain to people that, like myself, wouldn't understand this, but it's, it, you hear this and people want to know, what is the tightrope surgery?
3: Oh,
5: I love talking about this. Yes, uh, and, and tightrope is a brand. So when you see it, you'll see like the, the, the capital T, the capital R, because it, it, it's a kit. Uh, It's a surgical kit that is made for this specific procedure uh, developed by surgeons in conjunction with Arthrex, the company that makes um, some of these uh, surgical implants. And they essentially drill a a couple holes um, through the outer leg bone, and then they thread this synthetic fiber through the... um, the, I, it's hard to explain without the visual. I'm like drawing with my hands. we so the people <laughs> on well. You're doing a great but job. But basically, they pass this through, and it's it's a, it's a braided rope, right? So it's a synthetic um, rope, for lack of a better word. And it, and, and it comes through in a braided fashion. It basically, they tighten it. So they pull it through, and then they cinch it. And you know how I was talking about when the ligaments are disrupted, those two leg bones will gap that rope is in there to bring them, to approximate those two bones together so that they're their normal width. So it's creating a normal shape, if you will, for that ankle joint so that you can have normal mechanics. Why does that matter so much? Because abnormal mechanics leads to arthritic changes in a joint. So if you have that gapping, uh, you can picture the ankle bone underneath it is sort of rocking around in there And that can wear down the cartilage and lead to arthritis. And that's what we used to see in players who would come back from these high ankle sprains before we understood them as well. Uh, They'd either come back too soon or probably needed uh, surgery that they weren't getting. And they ended up with an arthritic ankle, and that was the end of their career. Now, if you restore normal joint mechanics, you can actually prolong the life of the athlete's career because you're allowing that joint to maintain normal motion that's why the tightrope has been uh, such an advance is because it's less hardware in the ankle normal joint mechanics and it's bit of a myth, the surgeons who do this the most will tell you that they get frustrated when they hear that players are having this so that they can come back faster because that is not the goal of the surgery. The goal of the surgery is to restore stability and to create normal joint motion. And yes, along the way, once you do that, it does often help the athletes to be able to return more quickly, but that's not the primary motivation.
1: I want to talk about soft tissue injuries. Uh, Mike Vrabel, the Titans coach, called out a couple of his players in his season-ending press conference for hamstring injuries and and made it clear he felt like there were more things that they could do to train in order to control soft tissue injuries. Thoughts on soft tissue injuries and what can be done in training to possibly help prevent?
5: Yeah, the hamstring strain, like finding a way to prevent Hamstring strain is like the holy grail of a- athletic injuries across every sport because it affects every sport. Um, and and we we know that it's a problem in football uh, because, again, every position, uh, no one is immune to a hamstring strain, whether you're a speed, skill position player or, again, someone in the trenches, they get them as well. And we don't know how to prevent them. That's part of the problem. In medicine, we, we there's a lot of preventive uh, medicine research being done, but n- not anything that's led to any real conclusions. Um, the NFL was so concerned about hamstring injuries that they awarded a, a research grant uh, last year to a group. It, there, it was uh, an RFP and people applied and a group out of Wisconsin, an excellent um sports medicine research group, I would say, in Wisconsin won the award, and it's a $4 million grant to study hamstring injuries, basically to look at, uh, hopefully, understand causes, they're, they're looking at collegiate players, getting some baseline data when they come in. I was up in Wisconsin this summer, I actually saw some of the initial testing. So they're doing things to get some baseline data on the players as they come in, and then see what happens if they sustain an injury, how does that data change, What are the, they're looking at MRIs after the injury, so they can see is there an imaging correlation to the severity of what they see functionally and clinically, and then as they return and they go through rehab, uh, how do they do and how do they fare? And and it's going to take a while. I mean, it's a, I think it's a three-year study before we're going to see any real results out of it. But um, it's a problem. Everyone acknowledges it. There's no great solutions. I appreciate what Mike Rabel is saying because people want their players to take care of themselves the best they can you know are you eating properly are you hydrating properly we know lack of hydration can lead to soft tissue injuries are you doing the appropriate uh, things that aren't football related do you know that do you have i don't know if cross training is the right word but are you doing the other things that you need to keep your body healthy It's tough because there may be a genetic component as well. You know, are some people more predisposed to these type of injuries than others? Some guys don't do any of you know quote unquote the right things, and they they they're fine. They don't get the injury. Other guys do everything in their power to stay healthy, and they're still susceptible. Uh, And we know that after you have one, at least a significant hamstring injury, you're more at risk for another. Because of the presence of scar tissue, there's actually research being done in sports medicine, looking at how do you potentially change what we see as scar tissue. Um, looking at uh, are there uh, stem cell, com- you know, stem cell treatments and things of that nature that could influence what scar looks like, so that it's more pliable. I mean. There's so much work being done looking at this, but I don't know that it's going to change anything in the immediate, uh, like the near future in terms of what we're seeing on the football field. It's a really tough area. There are not great answers, but you're, you're certainly identifying the problems we all look at. And the league is well aware. And between the NFL and the NFLPA, I think that's why they're dedicating resources to it. But there just aren't any good answers.
2: Stefania, uh, a lot of guys my, like myself follow your timeline because they all want to know about their fantasy lineups and, and how that stuff is going. But I it's hope clear it went you went well for everybody. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, but you, you were a licensed physical therapist for over twenty years. You uh, clearly know what you're talking about. Just you've talked way over my head for the last few awesome. minutes in this. But uh, how much of your time I- in what you do? is studying things just like you were talking about with the grant on, on trying to uh, do research on hamstring injuries. I mean, you you must not have enough hours in the day.
5: I, I don't. Thanks for noticing. <laughs> I feel like there's uh, there's not enough time to do everything that I want because I still, you know, the PT in me, is stu- that's my love, right, is studying this. And it's relevant. It translates to fantasy it translates you know because fantasy is an extension of real football i i believe you know we're all watching the same sport we're all looking at the same things but uh i the off season i spend a a ton of time this is where most of my time is spent is looking at i go to conferences uh, i'm talking with a lot of the folks who are working in these areas in sports medicine i'm listening to what are sort of the evolving trends in terms of treatment, rehab? Uh, I spend time with surgeons and we talk about surgical technique and some of the differences. You know, the guys who pioneered the tightrope procedure, I mean, we heard a lot about it because of Dr. Norm Waldrop at Alabama. So it, it got, you know, blown up because he was doing it. He's certainly one of the best. But talking to the folks who are doing the procedures, what are they seeing? What are the outcomes like? Uh, so, yeah, I don't know. I can't give you a number on how much time, but that, that is what I do in the offseason. I love it because it brings me to events like this, and then I get to talk to more and more people and, and see what's going on and hopefully bring it back in the fall.
0: Yeah, again, as a lifetime coach in this league, the devastation that an ACL injury used to be and where it is now How did that evolve so well? Because it used to be a massive scar, and it used to be a huge cast, and really the dude was probably (laughs) done. Now it's amazing.
5: It's so true. And I'm going to give away a little bit, uh, date myself, by saying when I was just finishing grad school at University of Miami, uh, people who had ACL injuries were still being casted. And even then it seemed intuitively from what I was learning as a PT, that that didn't make sense. And we often over-constrain things when we're worried about, like too much motion might disrupt something. It might disrupt the new graft. That's what they were afraid of. And then you realize that, Okay, the the graft's not going anywhere, but all the other tissues are being so compromised by immobilization. We know anybody who's had a cast on knows when you take the cast off, it's skinny, the skin looks bad, the joint hurts. Well, that's because you're immobilized, and we do it to allow the bone to heal, but it comes with some associated consequences. Well, in the ACL, the knee joint was getting so compromised by being casted that um, it took a brave surgeon with physical therapist to decide, I'm going to go ahead and move the knee. And we just lost uh, Dr. Stedman, who was known for having the ski clinics. Uh, I, I think it was Vail um, was where he had, you know, so people would ski down the mountain, Terry RaceL, you could get surgery right there. But he really was one of the pioneers in early motion. And I think when people started seeing the results, like anything in sports medicine really is, nobody wants to be the first. And people wonder sometimes why professional athletes aren't getting something that they know is out there that other people are doing. Typically nobody wants to be the first to do it on a pro because of the consequences if something goes wrong. So something has to develop in the larger sports medicine world, get enough data before they'll transfer it to a pro. And what they started seeing was there were enough people who were doing better with early mobilization that they sort of it started to swing that way so now you go into a brace to protect the knee when your first your quad is not working well after surgery so you have to be protected but the the quicker you get the motion the better the overall outcome is and when they started seeing that that's what changed it so Fascinating.
1: like Hendon Hooker you know he has an ACL that he's recovering from not and I don't know the specifics of his ACL but just say it's a basic one Teams are not marking him down significantly because he has an ACL. They'd like to see him work out, and it's going to hurt him that he can't throw for them. But no longer is he marked down because of this injury, it's almost like kids coming out in baseball with the Tommy John surgery now.
5: Yeah. And it's crazy. (laughs) There's so many layers to what I, how, how I would talk about the kids and the Tommy John Uh, surgery. That's another conversation, but you're right because the ACL surgery has become so commonplace. That being said, I always still caution people. It's still a big surgery. Sure. And we know that there's still a range of outcomes. And you're right. It depends on the, the individual and the specifics of their injury. Was it an isolated ACL tear? Did they also have a meniscus injury? Did they have any other ligament damage? Uh, and on and on and on. Did they have a history? Did they have any arthritis in the knee? Because sometimes there's arthritic changes already. And so uh, to your point, most play at most teams will see a player uh, who comes into the draft with an ACL injury and they, it's noted um, they might get a little ding on it depending on where they are in the recovery. But it's not they're not off the board. Right. And what they want to see when they come into the combine and they're going through the medical is are they progressing according to plan? That will be something that they look at. Like where are they on the recovery scale? Like Jeffrey
1: Simmons. When he came through with the Titans.
5: Okay, I, I mean I don't know the specifics of what happened when he came through, but I do, I'm trying to think of who was like the biggest one that everybody would remember uh, when it happened. It might have been Todd Gurley. Okay. That because everybody was, he was such a high prospect and he I he was undrafted. Yeah, I, I I think that. Yeah, Todd, we, we
0: we we researched that hard.
5: In, I think that was in St. Louis. Yeah, yeah I, was, I was
0: with the Rams for a yeah, long time. Yeah. Okay. And we researched that hard and. I can remember Todd standing next to me in
5: See? practice, saying, "I knew I brought that up for a reason." No, well <laughs> No, no, no. But
0: but Todd would stand next to me, going, "Coach Mack, I feel better. Can we go? Can can we go? Can we go?" And we really had to pull him back, you know, to save him from himself. But uh, we researched that extremely hard and came out with a favorable, and he had a nice career.
5: Yes, and 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 look, that would that that was uh, that was a good decision for you all. I mean. Todd Gurley uh, was, to me, I, I think he kind of stands out because there was so much attention on him. It was a big issue during the draft. And that was also the year that they, they have a medical meeting at the Combine. There was some research presented at that meeting. And it's all, all the uh, physician yes. and athletic training staffs get together and have a medical meeting right before the rest of the Combine starts because they're all in the same place. And they had done um, – you know, it was like an internal study and looked at data of players coming into the NFL having had an ACL reconstruction. And I don't have the numbers at the top of my head, uh, but they basically found that they went on to do very, very well. There was an increased risk for a tear of either or either a re tear. Less risk for that or a tear on the opposite side within the first i think 3 to 5 years uh, but other than that the metrics of far as far as their performance and return to peak per, peak performance were basically the same equivocal so that i i remember all the attention on Gurley. i remember mm-hmm. that combine and i remember him coming out and having the career that he did and people were like oh okay like this, this is really not something that's going to derail a player's career before it ever gets started. And I think that the biggest thing at the Combine will be, are they on schedule relative to the procedure that they had?
2: Is Adrian Peterson still the benchmark on <laughs> a guy coming back like that?
5: No. <laughs> and and he shouldn't be because he was such an outlier. And unfortunately, I mean, I th- has it 12 years, I think, since that happened, and yet people still talk about him like, oh, well, you know, Adrian Peterson did this in six months or whatever it was that he came back. And I say, how many ACLs have there been (laughs) since Adrian Peterson? You have to look at that and say, that was an outlier. If somebody fails, you know, if there's an extreme failure or an extreme success, it's probably an outlier. And you want to see where the norm lies. He was an incredible athlete, just his performance before he had the acl injury was remarkable he even had later after that a lateral meniscus tear and was did very very well after that so uh he was just an unusual specimen probably really good genetics on top of it and had the ability to come back and do what he did but it's it's remarkable and i I think uh it's not fair to other players to say, well, Adrian Peterson did this, because uh, then players put pressure on themselves enough already. You're talking about they want to come back, they want to do more, but they're not necessarily seeing the long-term consequences of coming back too soon. And we've seen players come back and look great out of the gate, but then they're doing too much and they end up with a secondary injury, usually a hamstring. Um, Dalvin Cook is a player who looked great when he first came back. And I think the Vikings got really excited, and he was running, he was just being utilized so much, and he immediately had a problematic hamstring tear that then was recurrent through the season, and really took him out uh, for for most of that year. And he didn't perform that well, but he came back the following year and was fantastic. So again, it's uh, it, there's a lot of nuance with these injuries, but just what I've sort of made a career out of talking about that, it's really hard because we tend to put people in buckets like, oh, you've had this. It'll be two to four weeks and you should be back and you should be fine. And little do we know there's some other variable that we haven't accounted for in that that is altering their rehab course and makes it more difficult for them to come back and not necessarily any fault of the player.
1: Do you expect changes in how the NFL deals with concussions in 2023?
5: You know, I I think – I don't expect anything in particular. I think uh, they they modified the language after the situation with Tua, where he returned to the game, uh, had not been diagnosed with a concussion, but had the stumbling that everybody saw. And so they just made it clear that if anything like that was visible, the player would not return, whether they cleared the testing or not. That was essentially the nuts and bolts of the language change that happened in the season. And I think what they would tell you from the NFL and NFLPA side is that uh, it's a fluid document, uh, the one that outlines the concussion protocol. And that anytime they see something that warrants a change, they will change. One of the things I felt like I said a lot in the aftermath of the TUA situation was the problem we have when it comes to concussions is we don't have great objective testing in place. And it's an area that's been heavily researched in the last few years. And there are sort of different feelings on how solid the data is around some of the objective measures that are being utilized um, by some groups whether it's outside or inside the nfl Um, but league-wide there has not been anything that has met the standards for them to adopt it as uh, part of their standard objective testing so it relies on information from the athlete the communication back and forth um, some of the testing that they do in the blue tent or in the locker room But really, the neurologic testing, other than if you're looking at the pupils or some of the, what we call cranial nerve testing, things they can look at if there's a clear, um, something's awry, they can note that. But much of it is based on player response. And so that puts subjectivity into the equation. And they're looking at blood biomarker testing, saliva biomarker testing, Is there anything with eye tracking? Um, I know there are eye tracking devices out there that are being utilized as adjuncts uh, for determining concussion or diagnosing whether a player should be removed from play or able to return to play, uh, and certainly in other sports. But those things need to come along in order to remove this burden from people who are making decisions based on, I you know, I really don't believe there's malintent out there by anyone on the medical side. It's just not worth it to them. I mean, this is not, uh, contrary to what people may believe, it's not a highly reimbursed position. Uh, a lot of it is donated time. I mean, people are, this is something they do, uh, and I think they enjoy it, the medical professionals who, who work with the teams would tell you, but they're not employed by the teams, other than the athletic training staff. Uh, physicians are not employed by the teams. The UNCs, the, they have an arrangement, but the compensation is not worth the time, the stress, and the drama. <laughs> so they're do, they're, everybody, I believe, is trying to do the right thing, but we're operating in a space where we don't have the best tools, and there's still a lot we don't know about head injury.
0: You know, when you first sat down here, you've said some tremendous things. But you did not tell the truth when you first sat down here when you said that you didn't know if you could explain <laughs> things. This has been absolutely fabulous.
5: Oh, thank you.
0: I want to wrap up with this.
1: How did you get on TV? How did that you is be- a fair How question. How did you I do become <laughs> ESPN's injury expert? Uh, because I'm going to tell you something. I'm not just saying this because you're here. <laughs> when you come on the television, if I have it on in my office, I turn up the sound. Because I don't always have the sound up because people be coming in and out and you're working. But, I mean, because what you're saying is important to people. So, that's oh. certainly a compliment. Well, thank you. But h- how did you go from doing PT to, to this role? I think people would be interested to know.
5: It, it, it's funny. It was not a linear path, let me tell you that. Okay. I just... You know, I I was always fascinated by, I was always a sports fan, and always fascinated by when a big injury happened, there wasn't really anyone to talk about it, or people were kind of guessing, but the more I learned and the more I knew, the more I, oh no, that's not it, don't say that, you know, and I would get frustrated on the fan side of the TV, why don't they have somebody who can explain this a little bit better, or give you some perspective you know, from, from the medical standpoint. And, you know, I think around the time I was getting interested, you started seeing a lot of legal analysts on TV and that kind of gave me the idea of, you know, here's some people who are educated in the law, but they're not inside this trial. But, you know, we had a whole station in Court TV that was dedicated to people who were not part of that trial, but could still talk about it and lend their perspective because they were lawyers who had trial law experience and they were talking about it. So I thought, well, why couldn't you do that for sports? If you had people who work in sports medicine who understand, I've worked in the training room all through college. I, you know, I was working with D1 sports when I was at KU. I've I've worked in all these environments. I've treated these athletes. I treated athletes from high school to professional for all the years before I came here uh, to ESPN. So why not me <laughs> there you go and I also was a teacher so I was used to having to explain things I taught at, I taught at KU and then I taught in post-professional fellowship training programs and physical therapy so the combination of explaining loving sports wanting to do it on a different platform led me and that and then I played fantasy football and then people were asking me all the time about injuries to help with their teams and I said you know This is how I do it because if people, if information is valuable, somebody's going to pay me to do it. And everybody said, Oh, no, it's nice what you did when I first was talking to people, but no one's going to pay you to do that. And I said, Well, Sure you are, if the information is valuable <laughs> enough to you. And eventually, um, I beat down a few doors. And actually, the company Rotowire, who still supplies sure. a lot of the player card information for us at ESPN, and it was there. Uh, it, w- it was Peter Schenke, their CEO basically, who who said, "Come write for us." And I started writing for their ma- magazines when everybody did magazines at the time, and then uh, got on the radio with them when they developed a radio deal, and that got me talking on air, and then. ESPN. Um, Matthew Berry had just gone to ESPN and was tasked with building the fantasy group, and they brought me out for an audition. And I thought for sure after that audition, I would never be going back. But instead, I left with a job offer. So... Are are you more
1: valuable since gambling became legal?
5: You know, I I don't know. You'd probably have to ask the the gamers. But somebody asked me, uh, I did an interview um, with my friend Jeff Ma on his podcast, Bet the Process, uh, just a week ago. And he was asking if my process had changed. And I said, no, not really, because the information is the information. It's still the same. I might have a different sort of audience that's listening to it. I'm not telling you how to place your bets. <laughs> I'm just telling you information that I would share with anybody else. So um, how that information is utilized, that, that goes beyond my scope. But uh, I'm just happy to talk about it. Obviously, I like talking about this stuff. Well, I probably have... talk too much. No, gotcha.
1: no we, <laughs> this is fabulous. We feel like we've taken advantage of your time. We, we apologize. You're a oh, rock no. star. Stefania no. Bell, ESPN. Thank you so much for being with us on the OTP. Oh,
5: it's my pleasure.
0: Stefania Bell knows her stuff. She
2: is so impressive.
0: And if I had any more adjectives, I mean,
2: wow. I'm I'm not smart enough to have any more adjectives. (laughs) She's amazing. So, So impressive.
1: Introducing the new Dunkin' Rewards program. These are rewards you can really use. Free donuts, coffee, breakfast sandwiches. Join Dunkin' Rewards today. Save them, stack them, use them however you want. America runs on Dunkin'. Get them on the app. All right, so final takeaways from the week in Mobile. Coach Dave McGinnis, I'm going to let you go first.
0: I've been to about 35 of these. I enjoyed this with you two more than any of them. Oh, wow. Very kind. How nice. Because, that, I mean, the, the, just watching you guys work, and, Rhett, this is your first one, correct? Yep. That's watching a, you guys work. One. Now, Mike's a pro at it. But watching you guys work and, and, and all the work that you put into it, look – I was a head coach in this league. I was an assistant head coach. I was in charge of people, and I, I I observed people down here to see what, I mean the the work that you guys put in down here was amazing, and I I enjoyed you know we sat together up there in the stands, and of course a lot of coaches would come to talk to me, and 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 I would immediately introduce you to them because you guys are legit down here. I'm well, just telling you. you that
2: very legit. kind. That was a part one of my takeaways. It's just being around coach like Mack. like we go when we go to the combine. Here we are in the stands, and the first couple of days of practice, there's somebody coming by to say hello to Coach Mack. Ray Agnew, the assistant general manager of the Detroit Lions who worked with Mack in the Rams organization, knows Rand Carthon very well. And here's Don Wink-Martindale walking by. Came over. I witnessed the whole thing. Wink-Martindale, former
1: Ravens defensive coordinator, current Giants defensive coordinator, came all
2: the way over just to see Coach Mack. He's beloved by all. He's the mayor of everywhere. But uh, this, the way Jim Nagy and his crew have this set up, it's impressive. Whoa. Uh, it, it is not work to be taken lightly. They take it seriously. They do an excellent job. I was blown away by the University of South Alabama's campus at Hancock-Whitney Stadium. What a beautiful facility that is. And I'm excited to take this first step on what will be some really good draft coverage at TennesseeTitans.com and certainly on Titans Radio. Good group of tight ends. I like the offensive line talent here. Running backs was a good group, and I think that's just something to build off of as we head towards combine and draft. My takeaway started with Jim Nagy's
1: opening press conference when he said that he did not he thought it was quite possible that for the first time in seven years, the Senior Bowl will not produce a first-round pick. This is a very interesting draft from the standpoint that the, the COVID draft last year was very thick because so many guys stayed around for a 21 season, and then in 22, the draft was was thick in terms of numbers. There were a lot of good undrafteds. There were a lot of good late picks. You know, you, you've seen that overall. This draft is probably a little less thick than normal because that one was so thick. In discussing Jim's point with other people, there are folks that feel there will be less first-round grades this year than are normally given. And what would you say coach on average? Most teams will give 20 to 25 first-round grades. That's a good number. The feeling is this year there will be somewhere between 15 and 18 first-round grades given by the average team. There's always been talk that the, that the real draft is 20 to 75. That that's where you make your hay. There's some feeling this year that that draft that that you know where you get the really good players is not 20 to 75 it's 15 to 50 and so i think for the titans to be picking higher this year it's not fortunate in the way that the season ended certainly but it fits you know you're going to be able to claim one of those guys with a true number one grade at 11 and then you're going to be able to get a really really quality player at 42 that's in that sweet spot um But for me, the final takeaway is rounds three through seven, you have got to be so discerning about what fits you and how these guys can fit you quickly. The 2022 class was excellent for the Titans. They need another one just like it. And as the Mike vrabel Carthon marriage comes together in figuring out What a Titan looks like and what the needs are. It's going to be fascinating to watch that develop, not just through the next two and a half months to the draft, but also what they decide they need in free agency. Because they don't think they can get it in the draft.
0: Well, that's the beauty of draft preparation. Oh, yeah. And, again, I, I, I go back to that's why it's so vital, and, and that's why Titans Radio goes over and above. <laughs> now, I'm serious. To be here. Some say crazy, right? No, but the,
2: it's a lot of work. It's the kind of crazy I'm here for. Right, me but too. How about it, that? Me too. The,
0: the, draft, the draft prep is a lot of work. I've done it, all, you know, for over half my adult life. But this and the combine, but and, and that's why I said what I said at, at the beginning of it. And – the more that you're able to dig on it and just to give the perspective that you just gave, I mean, if to, for people to listen that really want to understand what's going on, it's not always about who the first rounder is. Right. That's not what the draft is. And so, as I said, that's why I said what I said to begin with. Just This is work down here, you know, and this is work. And I've been a coach here for a long time, and you know the people that work, but the work that was put in here – And this content is really good. Well, thank you for saying that. Appreciate that. And
1: I I just think as we delved into it on the surface, new GM coming off a losing season, uh, the salary cap stuff, the decisions about veterans that have to come, all of these things, you just say on the front end, it's going to be the most interesting Titans offseason in seven years since John Robinson came in in 2016. I think after being in Mobile this past week, it's going to be even more interesting
0: because of what this draft really is. Well, and it's going to be more interesting once we get to the Combine, too. Oh, gosh. Because this was 120 players down here. We've got 330 at the Combine. Well,
1: and and the whole thing, too, is that the overall with this is for six weeks, you know, because you you think about the – the fiscal year starts March 15, 3 p.m. Central. You've got to be under the cap, so you've got a lot of decisions that you've got to make. The legal tampering period starts on Monday the 13th. Where will Rand Carthon and Mike Vrabel go free agency-wise? What, what will be their targets? Because it's going to change a lot of the calculus Towards this draft, and and listen, it's going to start with. It has to begin with what you're doing at quarterback. Sure, it does. I mean, they've got to make a decision on quarterback, and it it, begins with what
0: you're doing with your present roster.
1: Right, that's what it begins with. Right, and that's been what Rand Carthon has been having to jam on so hard. Is you don't just come in and say, "Well, I'm getting ready for the draft," and. I'm looking at the present roster. I mean, they've got to figure this puzzle out with the present roster fast.
0: And that's what you have to do because you understand Rand knows this draft just because of the positions he's held with the 49ers. He knows these players, and as he said very
2: well in his first press conference, I know them on tape. I don't know the people. That's important. But Yeah, I mean, you're 100% right that – they're over the cap, and so there's going to have to be some wrangling and figuring out before you ever get uh, – while the draft process goes on through all that. I mean, there's uh, Rand Carthon has a lot of work to do. Well, and for the OT people, you read the
1: numbers about what the Titans are over the cap right now. And whatever those exactly are, we don't know. It's over 20 million, whatever. They, they can get there with – not a lot of moves. They don't have to wipe everything out like the Titans did after the 2004 season. It's not that. But that's your top 51 salaries. That's, that's what the cap is based on in the off season. When you get to the regular season, it's all of your salaries, 53. It's all of your practice squad. It's anybody who's on IR. So you can't just get a dollar under you know, on March the fifteenth, especially if you want to sign free agents, you got to sign your draft class. So you're going to maneuver all of that to start working towards September.
0: No, sure. I mean, it's you.
2: You call it operating income, right? Which you
0: have to have during the season. That's
2: that's what it is. And based on the numbers that they've had to come in and out of the roster the last two seasons, that's paramount. It is paramount. It is paramount indeed. Okay. Coach Mack, thank
1: you for all your work this week. We certainly appreciate it.
2: You know how much I love it. I know you do. (laughs) Rhett Bryan,
1: thank you for joining us. The first one
2: I hope won't be the last one because this is fun.
1: Follow him on Twitter, at RhettBTennessee. Amy Wells is somebody that you can follow for every picture of Coach Mack from forever. (laughs) Coach Mack's photo gallery, at TitansAmy. That's at Titans A M I E at TitansAmy, to follow Amy Wells on Twitter. For all of our content from Mobile, uh, go to TennesseeTitans.com. Jim Wyatt was down here earlier in the week. And he's going to have some great stuff from the Pro Bowl as well, and then on to the Super Bowl. But uh, we've got a lot of video content and always the OTPs. We appreciate Farm Bureau Health Plans sponsoring us as always. And please tell your friends, OT people. Let's expand the family, uh, especially as we move forward. We're going to try to have uh, OTPs as regularly as possible as we go through all of this process together. For the coach and Rhett, I'm Mike Keith, thanking you for listening to the OTP.